this morning. So I'd love to, love to meet you. Well, we're going to take our Bibles together, and for our time in the Word this morning, we're in Genesis chapter 14. Now, I'm going to read this, and uh, it's full of a lot of names, and I'm going to read it carefully, and I encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles, because if you're just listening, it might just sound like a jumble of words and different names, and then you might be tempted to think, did he pronounce that correctly? So I'm just, you know, somebody said, when you're reading strange things in the Bible that you don't normally pronounce, just own it. So I'm going to own it, and if I say it wrong, just Let's go with it, all right? All right, Genesis chapter 14. Let's give our attention to the reading of the word of God. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Alasar, Ketelaramar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, and all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketelermar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Ketelermar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashteroth, Kernaim, and Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shavakarathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zor, went out and they joined in battle in the valley of Sidim with Kedlaramar, king of Elam, title king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living in the oaks by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them. And pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketelaramar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet at the valley of Sheva, meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of, most of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Aram, Abram, by, most, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing 
But what the young men have with me, who went with me, let Anar, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of God. We thank him for it, and I want to encourage us to pray now and ask for the Lord's help in this time. So join me, would you? Father, this record of history is your living and active word. And it has been given to instruct us, to make us wise to salvation, to sanctify us in your truth, which means to make us like your son in character. And we want that. We want that to happen. We sang a moment ago that we would hear you through the preaching of your word. And that's what we need, Father. We need your voice to take hold in our hearts. Your words, not the words of a mere man. So please cause it to happen. Even through the weakness and the foolishness of preaching that this would happen now. Give us ears to hear attentiveness of mind and heart and a readiness to submit to what your word says to us today. And we pray it for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, a lot of names, a lot of different places, uh, and we'll try to pull this together. But as I was thinking about how to uh, think through and, and present this this morning, I thought about what it means to serve. What does it mean to serve your country? What does that look like? And for most here, you simply exercise your vote. But in addition, many have received a particular commission. You swore an oath to uphold and defend this nation against, as the oath says, all enemies, foreign and domestic, to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. What does it look like to serve your husband or your wife? Well, you made a pledge before God and before witnesses to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, health, to love and to cherish until parted by death. There's particulars around what it looks to serve, what it looks like to serve your country or to serve your husband or your wife. Well, in the last section in chapter 13, we were uh, reminded there of the Lord's promise. And we were reminded that Abram was likewise reminded of the Lord's promise to him. And he returned to the land of Canaan. Now he is dwelling in the Lord, in the, in the, the, the land that the Lord promised to give his offspring. He, Abram that is, settles down and begins to orient his life around God's promises. He is serving the Lord in Hebron. So what does that service to the Lord look like for Abram? And what does that service to the Lord look like for us? And that's how I want to make the application this morning. Now, I see a contrast in the text that we just dealt with, and it might be slightly obscured because of all the names that I read. In our text, I see this, in, uh, this contrast, and I, I think it's quite instructive. In, in chapter 13, the last chapter, verse 12, we see that Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now we see in chapter 14, verse 12, he's dwelling in Sodom. Now, for 12 years, these five cities, including the city of Sodom, these are city-states, 
This is where Lot has been dwelling. For 12 years, they had been serving Ketularimar. He's that king, a foreign king. They'd been serving him, which means that they had been paying tribute to him. Effectively, they were enslaved to this foreign king. And since Lot is living in Sodom, that's Lot's lot. That's his circumstance. He is in a godless city serving a godless king instead of serving the Lord to him he belongs. And that serves as a contrast for us to Abram, who is serving the Lord in the land that he was promised. So we can see from this chapter that that Abram served no foreign godless king. Rather, he served the Lord. And what did he do? And from our text, we can observe that Abram watched. As he served the Lord, Abram watched. He warred and he worshipped. The alliteration I borrowed from Warren Worsby. But I had the same idea, so I, I needed to give credit where credit is due. But Abram watched, he warred, and he worshipped. And there really is an application for us as well as Christ followers today. You see, as, peop- as the people of God, we must likewise be watchful. We must be warring, and we must be worshippers. Now, we're going to make way, as we make our way through the text, we're going to see how this, this applies. First of all, be watchful. Be watchful. As we think about what it means to serve the Lord, be watchful. Now, I think we all get this. It is wise to be proactive versus reactive. For example, if your car needs new tires or if the brakes are worn, it's wise to have already saved some money so that you could afford to maintain the car. I think we get this, right? A wise car owner looks at the maintenance items to be able to plan for those eventualities. Things will break down. And if you don't watch these things, you or the ones you love could be in difficulty or even danger. Now, this was true for Abram. He was watchful about the world around him, living proactively by God's promises. Now, I'm gonna see, I want you to see, first of all, Abram watched out for evil. He watched out for evil. Now, uh, this, uh, this king uh, of Elam, Ketalermar, he gets top billing after verse 1. But... In verse 1, we're told in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, then it says Arioch, king of Elisar, then Ketalermar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and the other kings. Now, I take it, again, after, after this verse, Ketalermar gets top billing because he's probably the one leading this effort. But, but we're told here that and I believe it's purposeful that the king of Shinar is named first. Shinar is the plain where Babel, also known as Babylon, was built. Quite a bit east of Canaan, across the Arabian Desert. These people living in the plain of Shinar, in Babel, in Babylon, these people were descendants of Shem, which is the, the blessed son of Noah. But they were very far from the Lord. Now Babylon... Babel, Shinar, that's in the east. And as we've talked about in weeks past, the east is a reoccurring theme of not just a, a direction or a, or a geog- geographical location, but it's a place that has chosen to be away from the Lord. 
a place where there are people who have chosen to be away from the Lord. Babylon, the east, is regarded as that place that functions independently of the Lord. Now that culture is marching west, and, it, and Lot and his family find themselves caught up in it, in the midst of it. So these four kings, led by Ketelermar, making war on the five kings, including the king of Sodom, those, the king of Sodom and his allies, decided they didn't want to pay tribute anymore. They were tired of being enslaved to Ketelermar. Now, like I said, it's, it's this interest, interesting observation that Kedarleomar and the kings allied with him were descendants of Shem, the blessed line, right? And those that Abram ultimately rescues are actually descendants of Ham, the one, the line that was cursed. So we might ask, and this is a brief aside, but I might ask, how does this square with the blessing and cursing of Noah's sons. We dealt with this a few weeks ago. You can look back, Genesis chapter 9. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Canaan, a son of Ham, the Hamites were the ones who would be cursed. But here, Abram is about ready to go rescue the Hamites. And Ketelermar and the kings allied with him are Shemites. So how does this square? Now, like I said, it's just an aside, but it's important to know. And I think what this reveals is that God's blessing was not on all of the offspring of Shem, but the offspring through whom the seed of the woman would be revealed. And I take it that Abram understood this. Even as the line of Shem fanned out across the world, God's blessing would be particularized for the sake of a singular offspring, ultimately the Christ. So here's what I mean. The Christ would ultimately be revealed through Abram, a Shemite, to Isaac, right? But not Ishmael. To Jacob, but not Esau. Through Judah, not the 11, other 11 sons of Jacob. So I think Abram knew this. So he didn't have to blindly ally himself with Ketelermar. He was aware. He was watchful. He was watchful for what was going on in the world. Watchful for evil. Secondly, we can see that Abram watched himself. Now, this is a simple practical truth. Unlike Lot, again, we've got this comparison. Lot here is enslaved to Sodom. Ultimately, he's enslaved in Sodom, enslaved to Ketelermar, and they decide to break free. But he suffers the consequence. The whole city does. Abram did not settle near Sodom. He stayed in the land that the Lord had promised him. He stayed home. That's the land the Lord told him to occupy. He ordered his life around the things that God told him. He watched himself. Lot did not stay near Abram, the patriarch of the promise but he rather, rather chose to live in the proximity to evil men. Now that might not seem significant, but as a matter of wisdom, believers, we're going to be watchful. We've got to know where to go and what to avoid, do we not? Abram knew. 
Then the previous chapter, at the time that Lot and Abram separated, Lot moved his tent as far as Sodom. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 13 says there, just to remind you, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now the Bible text here doesn't comment on the wisdom or lack thereof of Lot living in Sodom, but I think it's implied. Now Lot living in Sodom, trying to be a righteous person among evil. That is not easy. And, and this would not be the only time that Lot's proximity to Sodom would put him in moral and physical danger. Abram watched himself. By comparison, Lot was not watchful. Well, further, Abram watched out for his family. Verse 11 tells us, so, so the enemy took all of the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot's captured up in this thing. But then one, verse 13, escaped and came and told Abram. You see, Lot's situation mattered to Abram. Someone came and told him because they knew he would care about his kinsmen. Simple, simple truth. He watched out for those he loved. Now the question this morning as we think about what it means to serve the Lord, I put it to you, are you watchful? Being watchful means keeping our eyes wide open to the world around us. Now, this isn't for the purpose of, of constantly judging it, but it's for the purpose of not getting caught up in worldliness. Now, we can't avoid proximity to all evil. We can't. But we can and we must be proactive and make choices that will shield us and give us wisdom to deal with what is around us. The Apostle Peter says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Some of you know this. Your adversary, not some other nation, your adversary, the devil, prowl, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He wants to devour you. You must be watchful. That's why we have the local church. And if you're a member, that's why you're a member here. And if you're not a member, that's why you need to identify with us. The church helps us in our watchfulness. Now, there are people who profess to be believers in Jesus that don't want to commit to be in covenant with other believers. And I would say this. If, if you're avoiding a connection to the local church, it's like Lot pitching his tent near Sodom. It's like trying to be righteous in a wicked city. It's hard to be watchful. Because brothers and sisters, we watch for one another. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has exhorted the church, and that whole, the, whole, uh, the whole of 1 Corinthians, Initially, to pursue unity with other believers by, by focusing on Christ, fleeing sexual immorality and, and really purging it from among them, learning to serve one another in love, and that's where we get that, that love chapter, imitating Christ in character. And to wrap it all up, the Apostle Paul links faith and strength with watchfulness. He says this, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And I would suggest to you, act like men. It's just, act like humans. <laughs> act like people. 
We must be watchful. Abram was watchful. We must likewise be watchful. Secondly, to serve the Lord, we must be warring. Warring. I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, but because many here are employed in one of the branches of the armed forces or, or work in industries that support them, all these contractors, I, I guess I take it uh, that most of us simply take for granted that there is a thing called just war, just war, righteous war. Um, philosopher theologians like uh, Augustine and uh, Thomas of Aquinas were both proponents of a form of that idea. And uh, I haven't met a pacifist here. Um, and if that's your position, I, I, my purpose here isn't to make a case for or against any political, uh, sort of particular geopolitical conflict that, that we've been involved in. I, I'm simply illustrating the fact that at times war is deemed to be necessary. You who serve in the military assume this. And we can see from our text in Genesis that Abram believed it necessary as well. Warring was necessary. Now, Abram's objective, after he found out that Lot had been captured and all of his family, his, his objective was a narrow one. He simply wanted to free his nephew, Lot. He had no other dog in the hunt, as it were. That wasn't, wasn't his objective. I, I suspect that if those kings were warring and Lot had nothing to do with it, he would have kept his nose out of it. But it was about Lot, and it was a very uh, particular focus. So these three kings allied with Ketelermar defeated five kings in the Sodom alliance. And the way it happened, we're told in the text, that they were basically chased into these tar pits, bitumen pits, that were on the battlefield, and they were badly defeated. Now, verse 14 tells us that Abram, in the war effort, assembled 318 men born in his house. That is to say, those who were part of his household. It's really another way of saying the servants who are part of his enterprise. And he devised a strategy to conquer, and he went in at night. Now, if you just look at this and... and, and Try to read between the lines, which I'm not saying is always necessarily a wise thing to do, but just think with me through this. We're not told how many fighting men Keter Leomar had, but it would seem to me that four kings representing four city-states would have had significantly more than 318 that Abram had. Yet, Abram prevailed. Why? Because the Lord was with him. Abram went to war to rescue his nephew Lot. Abram was on the side of righteousness. And because the Lord was with him, he prevailed. Now, brothers and sisters who belong to Christ today, you are on the side of righteousness. And you and I must go to war. But I'm not talking about war against a nation. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the battle. So what do we do? When we go to war, what do we do? Well, we must mount a strong defense. And we can and we will prevail. Why? 
Because we're on the side of righteousness, because the Lord is with us. And we have been given the defensive armaments. The Apostle Paul continues in Ephesians 6, 11, put on the whole armor of God, the whole armor, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Skip to verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. You see, Paul says you will stand firm. You will enter the war and you will stand firm. Now, what are some of those schemes of the devil? What's the substance of the war? Well, for the devil, it's always to make sin look attractive. Brothers and sisters, you know this. It wouldn't be called a temptation unless there was something about it that looked attractive. Something that appealed to something in your mind, in your flesh, that said, oh, that's good, but I know it's wrong, but boy, it seems like it's good. And the scheme of the devil can give you reason in your mind not to forgive someone who offended you. Well, they just aren't sorry enough. The scheme of the devil can present it to you to cheat another to get the upper hand. A scheme of the devil could be to help you justify your rage and rebellion against God-ordained authorities. Well, they don't deserve my respect. The scheme of the devil could be to convince you or to try to convince you to be unfaithful in your marriage because, well, someone else seems more exciting, more attractive, or just makes you happy. Brothers and sisters, you know this. It's a battle for your mind. It's where it begins. We all know this. Long before you say the hurtful thing, long before the click of the mouse, long before you postured to make yourself look like the hero or the smart one, it was turning over in your mind. And we need a strong defense. We must go to war by, as Paul continues in the passage, taking up the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the, the shield of faith to extinguish Look what this does. The shield of faith extinguishes the flaming darts of the evil one. Take on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirits, the word of God, right? And praying at all times in the spirit. That's the battle. That's how we make war. Abram went to war for righteous ideal. We must be constantly at war with the schemes of the evil one. So don't stop fighting in prayer. And when you stumble, when you fail, confess to the Lord. Confess the one you sinned against, knowing that he, the Lord, is faithful and just to forgive. That's 1 John 1, 9. And stay in the realm of God's grace. Put your focus on Christ and his cross. There he took the punishment for your sin. There at the cross, Jesus broke sin's power over you. There at the cross, following being buried at the, in the tomb, in his resurrection, that guarantees your resurrection to live together with him forever. And when you focus on gospel truth, the, the defensive armaments that the Lord gives to us, it will teach you, as it says in Titus 2, 
to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It will teach you to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, present age while waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, the Apostle Paul's exhortation to Timothy is for all of us. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Serving God means we are warring against sin and the schemes of Satan. Finally, we serve the Lord by being a worshiper, a worshiper. Now, I think most of us uh, agree that we are naturally inclined to worship. You just simply praise the thing you value most, right? So maybe you're watching the Olympic Games. You team, you, sorry, you, you cheer for Team USA or Canada. You can do that too. That's all right. They're an ally. They're an ally. But we know that's not ultimate worship. It's, it's praise that's limited to the con context of, um, you know, swimming or, or gymnastics or skateboarding. Like, when did that happen? <laughs> Olympic skateboarding. But you cheer, right? You, you praise them because they're yours. They're your people. These are our representatives. It's a limited kind of worship. But there's a kind of worship that, that is about what? Or, or better said, really, who is ultimate? Ultimate. And the Lord our God is ultimate, and He deserves our greatest praise. Abram knew this and worshipped. Now look at verses uh, 17 and 18. When Abram returned from defeating Ketelaramar and his allies, here's what happened. The king of Sodom went to meet him. I guess Sodom extracted himself from a tar pit and found his way to Abram. Uh, Melchizedek, was with him also. So he's new. We haven't heard his name before. He's new in this story. And Melchizedek gives Abram a blessing. Uh, we can see this in the text. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. So the blessing to Abram, but really the greater blessing is the Lord, or acknowledging the greatness of the Lord, who in fact delivered uh, Abram's enemies into his hand. So Melchizedek was giving the Lord's blessing to Abram. It was an affirmation effectively for Abram that the Lord would fulfill his promise to him. Genesis 12, 3, previous two chapters ago. This is the promise that the Lord gave to Abram. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. So Melchizedek understands the source of the good that has come to Abram. It's God most high that has delivered Abram's enemy into his hand. And Abram knows this too. Now, verse 18, we're told that this Melchizedek is king of Salem. That's probably an earlier name for Jerusalem. Jerusalem, prior, was controlled by the Jebusites, a Canaanite tribe. But he here is described as a priest of God most high, El Elyon. Now, this is the first mention in the scriptures of anyone with a priestly office. And, and we, we certainly get this when you read through this. You find this, this Melchizedek character is a little mysterious. Now, he, Melchizedek, to Abram in the blessing does not use the name, the proper name of the Lord, Yahweh, to refer to him. But referring to him as God Most High, it's really a title. 
and stating, verse 19, that he is possessor of heaven and earth, presumes him to be creator. So Melchizedek has the right God, in spite of the fact that he is a Canaanite and probably a Jebusite. Apparently, there is a tradition outside of Abram that worships the true God. Now, to better understand Melchizedek, because Scripture, all of it is of divine authorship, we can use Scripture to interpret Scripture so we can better understand this Melchizedek character from Psalm 110, verse 4, and Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. And you can look that up later for your homework if you like. But referring to the Messiah, the psalmist in uh, Psalm 110 says this, "...the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind." You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the next reference to this Melchizedek in the Bible. And there isn't any more until we get to Hebrews. Now, if you've been in the adult Sunday school class uh, recently, you know that we dealt with this uh, several weeks ago, this character of Melchizedek. I look back in my my stuff. I preached through Hebrews in 2017. I I don't want to go into a, a deep dive on Melchizedek. Let's just suffice it to say that Melchizedek is a genuine historical figure and also a prefiguring type of Christ. That is to say, in his person, in something that he does, it points forward to a greater revelation in Jesus Christ himself as the perfect, all-sufficient priest. So he is here in Genesis in part to reveal something about how Jesus ultimately fulfills that mediatorial role That is to say, building the bridge between man and God. He is there to fulfill something and build in us expectation of one who will fulfill that mediatorial role in Christ himself. That's another study. But Melchizedek is here to show us something about how Abram serves the Lord through his worship. And as an expression of that worship to the Lord, verse 20, Abram gave him, that is Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. Now, some translations will use the word tithe. Tithe. Tithe simply means tenth. And and just to correct some of the wrong language, tithe isn't anything you might happen to put in the offering plate. It is the tenth. It's a calculation. It's a tenth, one-tenth of everything. That's the tithe. So if you're using the word when you give, you know, if you're giving a tenth of everything, then th- that's probably a good word. But, um, and if you're giving more than the tenth, then the word no longer applies. It's math, okay? But this is what Abram did. He gave Melchizedek the tenth. And this was in response to the Lord's blessing upon Abram through Melchizedek. So he gave him the tithe in response to that. Now, we see as well in this story that at the same time, the king of Sodom, who's actually mentioned first, he demands from Abram the captives from the city. So all of his people were captured and all of his stuff taken by Ketelermar. Abram gets it all back. The king of Sodom sends to Abram, look, just, just give me the people. You can have the stuff. But Abram wants nothing to do with being enriched by a pagan king. And he says to him, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. And to to reinforce it, he he effectively says, and I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God Most High, effectively a vow, sealing this determination. 
So, kind of put this together. He pays a tithe to Melchizedek and determines to take nothing at all of the spoils of war except what has been uh, eaten and consumed in the, the battle by his allies, but to simply trust the Lord. Now, I've said all that, but the question perhaps remains in our minds. How is Abram's tithe to Melchizedek an act of worship? Well, of course, the Lord needs nothing. However, giving his servants, giving to the needy, giving to the Lord's causes is a practical way to worship and exercise faith in the Lord. The offering of worship by God's people is an act of humility on our part to exalt the one who is ultimately worthy because he's infinitely worthy. So it's an act of humility to say, God, you are the worthy one and anything in that realm that acknowledges his goodness is an act of worship. So true worship gives expression to the greatest truths. So for us as believers, God saves. So we praise him. God provides. So we give to him. We give to him ourselves. We give to him our abilities. We give to him our resources. Brothers and sisters, God wants your worship. We serve God. Yes, by being watchful. Yes, by going to war. So in the first two cases, it's like, okay, there, there's bad stuff around. Watch out for it. Battle against it. This positive response to the Lord, to worship. God wants that worship. Now, God doesn't need your money. God wants your heart. Abram's heart was, was for the Lord, and, and it motivated his tithe. In, in the New Testament, Jesus encountered the Samaritan woman. He said this, true worshipers. He said this to her, because she had a question about worship. What's the right place? Well, Jesus corrects her thinking. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. I, I think it has the force of a command. I, I don't see that as like, well, maybe we could. That might be okay if you feel like it. I don't see that in what Jesus says. So let me ask a question. As you seek to serve the Lord, are you a true worshiper? So let's consider some scriptural tests. Scriptural tests to see if you're a true worshiper. Romans 12, 1, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That is the force of a command. Well, why does he exhort this? Because... He says in another place, you are not your own. You have been bought with the price. What's the price? Jesus died on the cross to bring you to God. Your sins have been forgiven. My sins have been forgiven. It's a glorious truth. What do we do in response to that? I had this record of debt against me. You had a record of debt against you that would cast you into hell forever. And Jesus comes and says, I've got this. Look to me. Strung out there on the cross, 
the wrath of God, the righteous and just wrath of God for your sin and mine was poured out in him. And so, yes, in light of the mercies of God to us, what do we do? God, you bought me. You own me. Use me. The whole of your life offered up alive to God for whatever he should have you to do. And listen, most of what God wants you to do is not some unique task. The will of God for your life is found in the Bible. Love God with your whole self. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with your time. Love God with your body. Love God with your abilities. Love your neighbor with your time. Love your neighbor with your abilities. Love and sacrifice for the people that God has put in your life and leave margin for others that you don't know about yet. So if your whole self belongs to the Lord, then doesn't it follow that all the stuff you have belongs to him as well? I said, God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. But what you do with money is certainly a measure of where your heart is. So on this matter of tithing, Abram, you, Abram giving Melchizedek the tenth as a way of worshiping the Lord, Proverbs says this, and this really applies to all of us, honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the first fruits of all your produce. That's the first fruits, not the crumbs. First fruits. Many people give the Lord the crumbs. Someone says, I, I can't afford to give. Well, that's because you've made all of your commitments for the mortgage and the car payment and whatever else you've obligated yourself to before you decided to give. Those are crumbs. Your money follows your heart. Now, it's not just about money. Any act of worship, any service to God, and the f anything offered up to God, that's got to emanate from a heart of gratitude. It has to. We don't, serve the Lord or give to the Lord with our arm twisted behind our back, reluctantly dragging our feet. It's got to come from a heart of gratitude. And I would say this, only true believers in Jesus can be grateful. Only true believers in Jesus know, know the grace of God to forgive sin to include us in his family. The mercy of God to, to cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. Only believers in Jesus know this. Only believers in Jesus can truly give of self. So if you're worshiping or serving out of some kind of obligation, please, please don't. But do this. Check yourself to see if you're in the faith. You ultimately praise what you love the most. So if you're in Christ, if you've trusted in him for your salvation, if you believe that Jesus died in your place, if you have trusted that his resurrection guarantees yours, then let your gratitude, let your, your joy in him 
please let it overflow in audible praise that the people of God can hear when we gather together. One more verse from Hebrews. Through Him, who? That is Christ. Through Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Abram ordered his life around the promises of God. He served the Lord. And as his spiritual offspring, we must order our lives around the promises of God. So live and serve the Lord and be watchful. Have your eyes open about the world around you so as you're not caught up living in Sodom. Find your way to the people of God so that you're protected and watched over. And we must be warring, not against our brothers or sisters or what we think are evil nations, because that's not the battle. Warring against the schemes of the evil one, whispering in our ears. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand. And finally, be a worshiper. Let your gratitude and joy overflow in serving, in giving, and praising. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word and Lord, I pray that um, your Holy Spirit will apply this truth to our lives. Lord, we know that uh, we're not always watchful, so make us watchful. Sometimes we allow the evil one's ideas to swim around in our minds more than we ought. We confess that, Father. Teach us to go to war moment by moment, daily. And Father, I pray that as your people, our hearts would overflow with gratitude and joy and praise for the immensity of your grace to us. Lord, we ask all of this, that the Lord Jesus himself might be exalted among us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.